Welcome to the podcast sessions with Rutendo Nyamuda. Today we're switching things up as we feature an audio special. Earlier this month, the South African Media Innovation Program held a panel discussion on the business of podcasting, exploring the ins and outs in the global south. This discussion was moderated by Shandukani Mulaudzi and features the following panelists. Paul McNally, Volume. It's not just that South Africa is new to podcasting, it's that we don't have a culture of recorded audio at all. Catherine Kotzer, Daily Maverick. We've spoken about the, the cost of producing an episode and for 20 cents an ad, there's just absolutely no way that that's a sustainable business model. Ramsey Tezdel, Salt. As you compare video and audio, don't say that audio is easier and cheaper than video. One, it's not actually true. And two, it undercuts your position. Selly Chum, None on Record. Because we work not just in Kenya, but across the continent and the diaspora, it's also been really challenging to find producers who can work outside of their cultural context. So when I say that, I mean Kenyan journalists report a story in Nigeria or Congolese journalists report a story, you know, in France and that kind of thing. And Michael Ruffeld, Children's Radio Foundation. I think this is key to all of us in terms of business sustainability. Um, is we really need to make sure that we're building specific podcast roles across Africa, across languages. The Podcast Sessions is all about sharing knowledge to open up the industry and make it possible for more people to have access to starting a podcast. So if you're someone interested in the business of podcasting, this episode is for you. The discussion begins with the panelists providing insight into who they are, the companies they work for, and their experience in the podcast industry thus far. Up first, Catherine Kotzer from Daily Maverick. To give you a bit of background into Daily Maverick's um, venture into podcasting is we've been looking at launching a podcast for the last two years. And when we started kind of the project, the idea was that we wanted something that had a very high production value. And at that stage, that meant employing new resources into Daily Maverick's family, which was a hard cost. And so because of that, we needed to either get grant funding or to have a launch advertiser on board with us to justify those employments. And as much as we went to market, we couldn't find either. Pretty much organically, when our sports editor came on board and he said, listen, I'm really keen to have my own podcast. I've got the time. I've got the capacity. You've got the equipment. Can we get going? And we were able to launch that within our existing resources. And then the big trigger that kind of put, put pressure on the project was when we went to Poland for the podcasting workshop Um and we then started actually with the little tidbits of information that we got from everybody else, realizing that if we were going to do this, we really needed to actually plunge in and try and bring something to the market and then try and see if we could make it sustainable. So the big thing that we had to do was figure out how it is that we were going to launch a podcast without employing any additional resources. Don't Shoot the Messenger is Daily Maverick's current flagship podcast. And the host of that is Rebecca Davis, who'd already established her name within Daily Maverick's writing and had her own newsletter. And we knew she had her own following. And so it was good to leverage off that name and off her voice. Um, and we successfully went through with season one, but are still sitting in a position where even with a sales deck and numbers and analytics and graphics and something that advertisers can listen to, it's still a difficult sell. We've had a lot of interest, but nobody's actually signed on the dotted line. 
What we've found and where we're, where we're looking at kind of the sustainability of podcasts as an arm of a media industry, which I think is different to, to some, to Paul, who's, who's working from a different perspective is that we need to look at, we're looking at other forms of revenue that aren't just advertising within our podcast that could sustain our editorial production. What we did when we launched Don't Shoot the Messenger, so we get between 50 and 70% of our listens on our podcast through an embedded web player on Daily Maverick's website. Uh, the rest of that comes through uh, podcast applications. So we know that the success of our podcast hinges on our audience listening through our platform. Up next, Paul McAnally from Volume speaks about their journey from community radio to running a podcast company. We've been through a number of iterations in terms of our business model. We sort of, um, I guess, the podcasting side of the business started when we um, produced What's Crap on WhatsApp. It's sort of the beginning. It feels like a very long time ago, but sort of towards the beginning of last year. Um, and that, at that time we were still involved in community radio and we were still in that sort of space, but we got a grant to produce what's crap on WhatsApp and we, for a year. And from there we went through, uh, I mean, I guess it was sort of like my passion for podcasts kind of, I really wanted to like own a podcasting company. And that was kind of a strange position to kind of come from when you want to start a business. Cause it's actually the, not the place you should be. Um, and we started a whole bunch of, small WhatsApp um, friendly shows, like five, six minutes, but none of them had any advertising and none of them had any sponsorship. And they were really done um, just just to see if they would work. And some of them worked better than others, um, but we, and we've still got them on our website, but it kind of got to this point where we realized that, I mean, kind of like to what Catherine was saying, we had one big show alibi, which was getting good numbers and we still couldn't sell any adverts on it. And that was kind of heartbreaking. And we kind of over the course of this year have sort of got to this point where we don't want to do um, podcasts which aren't bringing in revenue. But the thing was, is that because we were a startup, we couldn't actually afford to plunge resources into an editorial product which wasn't making any money. And and that's and initially that's how we I sort of envisioned the whole thing is that like, okay, we'll do a few paid for projects um, for like Coca-Cola, and then we'll use that money to pay for our um, big investigative projects. And maybe that's what will happen in the long run. But at the moment, we can't, we can't afford to do that. And I guess, given COVID and the advertising sort of like floor falling out of everything, I'm really glad that we didn't back that. I'm really glad that we didn't back the advertising model, because maybe we still maybe even if we would had it at the beginning of the year, we wouldn't have it now. Sally Chum from None on Record, based in Kenya, admits their transition into the industry was fairly smooth from the beginning, as they tapped into already existing resources, networks, and grant funding. The background of None on Record is that we are an African LGBT media organization. So we launched a podcast called Afroqueer, so now we're on our third season. Um, it was part of the Google Podcast Creative Program and has subsequently become kind of our flagship show and has, has been really popular over the last couple of years. Um, but when we started our company, we already had maybe about six years of producing content um, on the continent, mostly video documentary work um, and working and training activists. So we already had a pretty robust uh, funding model that was all based in nonprofit um, funding at that time. <clears throat> so what we did was we used our reserves actually because we had a pretty healthy reserve to launch Afroqueer because we didn't have any funding at the time to launch Afroqueer. And I think our model at that time was that we would put our money 
and our resources into the show that we actually really cared about. So it was never <clears throat> for us in the beginning about making money. It was more about putting something into the world that we really loved. And from there, it became a very, very popular show. And so from that point, it was a lot easier for people to come to us and say, hey, we want to give you X amount of dollars um, to produce season two and season three. So all the seasons of Afroqueer since season one have been fully funded um, through actually grants, grant work. I think in terms of podcasting, and particularly podcasting, a podcasting company that comes from Kenya, which has its own particular kinds of challenges. Um, we have a censorship challenge, you know, all kinds of challenges of doing a company here in Kenya. Um, it was never, we've never really thought that advertising was going to be the way to go for us. Um, even when we were approached to have someone sponsor advertising on our show, it ended up being something like $300 for the season. That was our first sort of idea of how much money that we were not going to be making through advertising. So we immediately uh, ditched that plan. Um, and what we've actually decided to do is we launched something called uh, AQ Studios, which is our actual podcast company. Um, and from the success of Afroqueer, we were able to then raise funding for three new shows that were in production and are going to launch um, <clears throat> around September and October of this year. So in the beginning, there was a pressure for us to try to have a for-profit model for, for what we did. But that model wasn't going to work, at least not yet, not here. So what we wanted to do was leverage already our nonprofit sort of um, track record. And it was easy to then pull in, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars to launch AQ Studios at that point. So what we're doing now is we have the time and the space and the resources to produce these three new shows. Um, because of the notoriety of Afroqueer, we were actually able to pitch to Spotify for another show that we could co-produce. And that will actually bring in tons of revenue for us. Um, but it also gave us time to produce shows we really, really loved um, and also to work with producers in Ghana and other places to give them time to actually produce their show in a way that they also loved. So we were able to underwrite the shows that way. From the Middle East, Ramsey Taisdell unpacks their various revenue streams, including listener revenue. The company that I co-founded um, and now run is called Sot, and Sot in Arabic means voice or sound. Um, and so we work in basically everything audio uh, related. And similar to kind of Sally's uh, journey, um, I had been working in media for a long time and we're a new um, kind of podcast uh, company. So we don't have the legacy of, you know, print or video or anything else. And so when we started, we started as a pure podcast play. Um, and that has worked well for us so far. And like Sally, um, we have built a business model and a business um, partly underwritten by grants and services. So part of our um, revenue stream is grants. And so we get grants to produce shows, to do uh, various activities, but we also get um, a, a decent amount of service contracts. So we produce white label uh, content for other people. Um, for other media organizations, for uh, civil society, for NGOs. Um, we've done a couple of UNDP, UN, various things um, that, you know, have done well for us. And so that's part of it. The other thing that we do, we have taken the can of advertising and kicked it down the road as far as possible, basically, um, with the idea that we understand 
that advertising, you know, has been a good uh, revenue and business model for for many years for many different things. But we're interested in looking at that in a different way. Um, so before I talk about what we're doing in advertising, I'll talk about kind of the priority strategies that we're doing. So like I said, grants are a good part of our business model. Service grants uh, and contracts are another part. And then the third part that we're working on right now, and we launched a couple months ago, is listener revenue. So like um, a lot of other uh, media organizations, we're looking to monetize the people who are reading and listening. So instead of reader revenue, we're looking at listener revenue. And what that entails is we launched a thing called SOAT Plus, and SOAT Plus is basically what it suggests. It's SOAT plus a lot of other stuff. Um, so you get access to our podcasts. Um, we're working on doing exclusive stuff for that. And the final is kind of advertising. Um, but what we're trying to do there, instead of building out an ads team that will go and sell, sell things and whatnot, you know, again, we don't have existing kind of departments that do that. Um, we're focusing on kind of title sponsorships. So going to people and saying, listen, here's 10 episodes of a show that does really well, that reaches these people in, in, in you know, this demographic, in this geographic, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Sponsor 10 episodes for this amount and we'll make sure you get a ton of reach and whatnot. It saves us building up kind of the, the infrastructure of building like ad sales and also so that we don't have to compete with people like Spotify who have you know, Spotify ad studio where you punch in like a paragraph, they record it, they put the music and they blast it out to millions of people who already sub subscribe. I love Spotify and I subscribe to them, but I'm also very concerned that they will do what Facebook and Google has done uh, to the audio ad market as well. Um, and so, you know, our content's there on f for free and they monetize it. So we should get some of that percentage probably pretty soon. Our final panelist, Michael Ruffelt from the Children's Radio Foundation, discusses how skills development and collaboration have been key to their business success. The radio workshop was started by the Children's Radio Foundation, uh, which is based here in Cape Town, uh, is a nonprofit working with 72 radio stations across six countries. And as the Radio Workshop, we are a for-profit uh, podcasting production and training business where the majority of the, pro the profits will feed back into the nonprofit Children's Radio Foundation to really fund our youth radio work across Africa. So the business model is a little bit unique, um, but also allows for a mixed, a kind of blended revenue stream similar to what Ramsey and, and Sully were noting with their work. We are currently a team of five based across Southern Africa. We have an editor and a business developer also working with us from the US. Uh, and we're finishing up a pilot of our new podcast, which will be shopping around next month. Really excited about it. It's a narrative uh, nonfiction podcast produced in partnership with journalists across Africa. And that's really one of the distinguishing features of what we're doing um, is that we're co-producing podcast episodes while actively training journalists as podcasters, uh, which also has a bit of a business opportunity in it as well to, um, to do sort of paid for training work largely funded by donors. So we have a little bit of a niche market that we're working with. Uh, journalists who are already great reporters and storytellers who don't necessarily have experience in radio or audio or podcasting, uh, and they're the kind of person who is maybe a writer for a 
a newspaper in a, a city in West Africa, but are so obsessed with podcasts themselves personally and probably have their own pet project of something they want to do. Uh, they, people often say, oh, I want to do the This American Life of Nigeria, for instance. Um, but they also don't know where to start in terms of the skills. So our model is really soliciting pitches from these contributors and working with them to shape their story for our podcast, uh, where they work with one of our producers and also an experienced podcast editor, which, I, which is key, I think, to... Uh, the business model of podcasting, and I'll mention that a little bit later. And of course, they get paid for what they produce for us at a market rate, uh, but also a hell of a lot of uh, training and mentorship and also support, some support on their uh, pet projects. So that's uh, really the role that we're going for. And because of the history of the Children's Radio Foundation, we're able to rely on existing uh, relationships with donors to actually fund some of these projects. Um, and I think that's also been key to our sustainability in that very long process of creating your flagship show that takes, takes uh, quite a bit of time. And also, I think this is key to all of us in terms of business sustainability, um, is we really need to make sure that we're building specific podcast roles across Africa, across languages, editors, uh, sound designers. Uh, and, and what we're trying to do is really think creatively about people who are already playing similar roles in other uh, maybe media institutions that could be amazing in a podcast role with some tutelage. So for instance, we're working with hip hop producers and beat makers to train them to get up to speed on what sound design and podcasting can look like. And really creating work also in a time when work is few and far between. But again, this process really takes time, uh, it takes money, and it takes a certain kind of intentionality uh, and follow through, which has really been uh, part of our process of launching our first show is really creating some of these systems where we can work with other people, which can be frustrating and fruitful, but I think is a really uh, important commitment to podcasting across the continent. From here on, Shandukani Mulaudzi will facilitate the rest of the conversation, discussing topics such as listenership, branded podcasts, skills needed in the industry, and the relationship between radio and podcasting. So I'm wondering about numbers in terms of listenership, Paul. And I'll ask you, when it, when it comes to um, Alibi, which I think is, which you, which you mentioned is your biggest show, in terms of numbers, what does it look like? It's kind of difficult. I mean, Alibi did well um, when it was initially released. Obviously, there was a huge spike. And I think what's interesting about it is people are kind of finding it organically. I mean, I think it does about... Uh, about 2,000 listens a week um, at the moment. But, like, that's kind of um, much lower. I mean, it came out in – the second series came out in January, so it's much lower. It's just sort of, like, um, legacy kind of listens are going on now. Um, and 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 what we've sort of found is that that kind of – most of the – like, the biggest – um, draw on in town is from Apple podcasts. So it's kind of coming from um, just people, people like searching. I don't know. I don't know what they're searching, but it basically there's enough reviews on it that are kind of, it's kind of spitting out on um, people's search feeds and on um, iTunes and that kind of stuff. The thing is about Alibi was that we had a first series, which was 
which took a long time to build that audience because we didn't have, I mean, podcast, when it first came out, like podcasting wasn't, I mean, it's not big now, but it definitely wasn't big then in South Africa. Um, and I don't have a huge like media following or anything like that to leverage off. So it kind of just built organically. And then we were able to sort of slot the second season on top of that. So that means that built some sort of listenership. I know that one thing that we've um, learned at uh, the radio workshops so far is that it also really depends on the type of podcast that you're creating and narrative podcasts are really, really expensive to make. It does get to a point where you're kind of asking yourself if you're spending a lot more than you're going to make. Um, And uh, Sally, there was something you said about uh, making sure that you had shows that were fully funded um, and then getting to a point where you're making a little bit, you're trying to bring money in. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think your point about narrative shows, they are very, I mean, documentary style shows, which are the next three in production are very, they're expensive and they're time consuming. Um, I think COVID has definitely forced us to travel less and we've been able to produce our shows remotely, which we probably, if COVID wasn't around, we wouldn't have done, but has actually saved us quite a bit of money. (laughs) So that's kind of been a bit of a blessing in disguise in terms of um, having us, forcing us to sort of fine tune our production costs. Um, But our, our next show that we are going into production for is actually a bit more of a chat cast. Um, And the budget for that show is like maybe 20% of what we spent on, on Afroqueer. Um, but I think, you know, to, to be fair, we, when we started, we were making this because we just really wanted to make a show. So um, even getting the, the current producers for AQ to now switch in terms of our business model and thinking also about um, profits into something that is, has a different kind of production value and is a different structure of show it took me, you know, a while to get them to actually uh, commit to doing something that is a chat cast. But I think... Um, after the last couple of years of producing a very heavy production, you know, heavy production show, um, we are we are smarter in terms of looking at um, different kinds of shows that we can produce for a quarter of the budget and actually are probably going to be um, profitable much quicker. I'm quickly going to ask Ramsey um, this question about listener revenue. I find that so interesting. I did a short stint at Gimlet at The Nod. When I was there, they, they were talking about like branded podcasting and how when you get to a point where you're, you're starting to create like podcasts for clients, it can get really, really annoying and really sticky because they want one thing, but they're not really sure what they want. Um, And then they got to the point where they were like, you know what, let's also try and see how we can actually make money from the people who are actually interested in our content um, as individuals and not necessarily um, as big donors. So I'm interested in how you guys got to that point of the listener revenue and what it looks like for you. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic question. And I I mean, if you look around media, you see a lot of people going towards listener and reader revenue and subscription models. And I mean, for for us, I think what pushed us over the line, there's two things really. One is my personal hatred of advertising and listening to ads. Um, I pay for, you know, subscription services, so I don't have to listen to ads. Um, I subscribe to magazines and whatnot and their apps and whatnot so that I don't have to see and read and listen to and watch their apps uh, advertising. So, you know, why would I as the the control 
the one producing this content, you know, go down that route as well. So the idea was partly born out of that. And the second thing was really born out of the crisis um, in the last six months, the last five months, where, um, you know, we've actually benefited from COVID a lot. There's been a lot of extra grant money and a lot of extra projects and all that travel money that used to get burned on hotels and whatnot has been pushed into other things. So we've actually benefited a lot from that. But I think, you know, the idea was this is setting and building a base for a future um, revenue model and stream. And also, you know, two years ago, I don't know how it is in, in everyone's countries, but here in the Middle East, at least two, three years ago, you would find a few people who were subscribed, you know, to Netflix or to Spotify or to the local variations. Now, you know, a lot of people are. And so this idea of paying for content um, is much more normal, as well as kind of, you know, our idea is really to pitch it as a premium and a plus. So it's, you know, the existing plus other stuff. And so you get extra added value. Um, and for us, you know, just two more things about that. One is we want to, as we, you know, as Sally was saying, you know, pitching in different types of content and owning the IP so that you have that. We're actively producing stuff right now that is audio and video. Um, so we're actually looking to license and sell video as we produce the audio at the same time. We're working on a show right now that will probably come out in English, Arabic, and as a video, either a documentary or like a three, four part miniseries. Um, and to be honest, the big money is in video. Um, that's where one thing is. And just a quick kind of note that I, as you compare video and audio, don't say that audio is easier and cheaper than video. It just undercuts your entire, uh, one, it's not actually true. And two, it undercuts your position. Catherine, I know you guys are, uh, are busy shopping around um, for, for, for a sponsor for your show. And, I, and I'm wondering if you can give any sort of insights of some of the things that you are learning on the journey. As I said, when I, when I introduced Daily Maverick's podcast arm um, is we were looking for launch sponsors. And one of the big things that corporates came back to us with is saying, we love the idea of Daily Maverick starting a podcast, but we're not going to sign on until we see the numbers. Um, now we've got an entire season, so we can take them the numbers and we can take them the graphics. But what we're facing is that all of our advertisers have an opportunity cost with choosing to sponsor the podcast. So to give you numbers, a podcast, and so we, we, we were selling in sponsorship. The CPM model just doesn't work. We have had advertising interest and in people going, you know, would you put this ad in your podcast? You get 20 cents per impression. And it's just like, hell no like that we've spoken about the the cost of producing an episode and for 20 cents an ad there's just absolutely no way that that's a sustainable business model and so as an entity even though it is a small amount of revenue we could get in we don't want to say that we support that revenue stream for podcasts so we work on a sponsorship model um we've done a costing of our episode and i think that that's really important for any entity that's going into podcasting because you know you need to understand where your resources are being allocated and what where you else you could allocate them and could that generate revenue for your business in that thing and even with the way we packaged it to try and convince advertisers to come on board we've thrown in daily maverick has newsletters which are really successful and a great form of advertising and, and serve our advertisers really well so we've thrown in a newsletter per episode that you sponsor so if you're sponsoring a 10-part season you get 10 newsletters with that and then we've thrown in banner display. So by the time you actually work out the value of the newsletter and the value of the banner display, 
The advertisers is essentially getting the podcast for free. And even then, we're still struggling to get people who support Daily Maverick, support the brand, love us as an advertising model, and they're not buying in. And I think the thing, and it's what I try and explain to our editorial team time and time again, is what we need to understand about advertising is that these agencies and these corporates set a budget at the beginning of the year. And they have an objective. They have something that they need to achieve with that budget. They either need to sign on clients into a certain fund or they need to sell something or they need to do that. And the podcast is very rarely going to help with that. And the other problem is that tracking conversions within podcasts is a lot more difficult than tracking conversions within a banner ad. And so our advertisers are always going to face these opportunity costs. And so you're looking for a perfect storm with a podcast advertiser where they want brand affiliation and brand exposure. They're not looking for conversion. And that's a rare find in the advertising market in South Africa at the moment. Question to all panelists, what skills people think need to be more fully developed where they are working to allow for a more robust podcast industry? So if you can just quickly, um, Ramsey, tell us, what do you think is a skill that needs to be um, developed in your area? I mean, just really quickly, I think one of the main, the main struggles are good editors, uh, not just for podcasts, but for kind of media in general. Um, and then on the flip side of that, having journalists that will accept the back and forth of an editor. A lot of people like once they hand in a piece, they're like, this is God's writing. It's the best thing ever. No one can change or make this better. It's like, okay, we're going to need to work on that attitude a little bit. Um, so both of those things are really important. And I'm sure other people have noticed this as well, but I know I've talked to Sally about this. Uh, recently. For us, we worked with a lot of film people, people who have produced video. Um, they get the scripting, they get the editing, they get the production, they get the kind of component building. Um, I found journalists and even radio people very uh, hard to kind of retrain or to click on to kind of the on-demand uh, kind of nature of audio uh, podcasting. So video people have been much better. Uh, if you're looking to plug into an industry that's already out there, anyone who's really worked with video and scripting and documentaries or even fiction, uh, people work really well. Sally, you have a, a, a video background, don't you? Yeah, I have to, I agree with Ramsey. I think being people being precious is a big problem, but <laughs> mostly um, what we need is we need some really, really, really great producers. Um, and so Mike touched upon this as well. Um, even our sound editor, he was a he was a music um, guy who like you know worked the boards, and we brought him in, and we have taught him how to edit all of our shows. Um, and then he's brought in like his group of young, you know, musical engineer. I don't even know what they're called. So he's edit. He's taught them how to edit documentary style shows. So we've actually had to build our cohort of sound editors. Um, the other big challenge is that we have a lot of radio journalists in the region, but they've mostly been trained by like BBC. Um, and so actually training them how to do documentary style and narrative style radio has been a, a task. Um, there's a lot of ways that people think audio is supposed to sound that we've had to, to sort of unteach. And that's been um, a huge challenge, but we've been able to get through that. And I think Ramsey's right in terms of filmmakers. I think documentary filmmakers have been really great to bring on. Um, and also um, documentary editors have been really great to bring on. Um, and so for, for there, we're, we're doing well. Um, but I think also to point out, um, because we work not just in Kenya, but across the continent and the diaspora, it's also been really challenging to find producers who can work outside of their cultural context. So this is also something we've had to really um, 
train people to do um, and to feel comfortable to do so um, and to be able to tell stories outside. You'd be able to report stories outside of their cultural context. And when I say that, I mean, Kenyan journalists report a story in Nigeria or Congolese journalists report a story, you know, in France and that kind of thing. So that's also been a process for us. But I think that kind of investment into working with people has really is benefiting us. And I think it's going to benefit the industry. Paul, I know you're looking to hire, so you must have a few skills that you think are necessary for um, our South African context. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, actually, on that point, I, I think what's fascinating for us is that when we've been going through TVs and just from recently going through that process is people are very skilled, but they're often skilled in radio and in the kind of production that comes with live radio. And I think that's what's interesting for a place like South Africa compared to maybe other parts of the world in that it's not just that South Africa is new to podcasting. It's that we don't have a culture of recorded audio at all, really. Right. So we don't have people are not. So these people that are coming out of university often have experience at their local student radio station and they have um, experience cutting like um, sound like, like, you know, like stings and things like that, but they don't have a sense of like scripting something. And there are exceptions to that. And like, I, I'm not trying to knock the universities in South Africa, but it's just sort of like, I understand why that is, is because people are kind of like their, their goals in is in terms of getting a job at 702 and, or, or Cape talk or somewhere like that. And I think that that's, that's a shame. And that's a huge gap. Like, so when we were going through trying to um, hire someone, we were really kind of looking for someone with experience, but also someone that like has listened to a lot of podcasts and is kind of interested that in their own time, because they actually haven't um, often been able to get that experience through their work. We have one last question that I'm going to throw to Mike, um, because Children's Radio Foundation, obviously, and Radio Workshop, um, have given careful consideration about what the role of radio is in the podcasting space in Africa, because at the end of the day, radio is king. Sure. So, yeah, the role of radio and podcasting in, I would say, in South Africa and across the continent uh, is very little uh, at the moment. I, I don't think there are quite a few, there are that many podcasts who are getting their content played on radio stations or who have worked out deals with radio stations. Uh, we are lucky, we have uh, relationships with 72 radio stations across six countries where we have dedicated airtime and also where we have quite a bit of presence across their social media channels, the radio stations. So uh, our way of really reaching um, listeners across the continent is going to be through working very closely with a lot of these radio stations, language dependent uh, on releasing content in formats that are conducive to their broadcast needs. So I think one of the issues is that if you have a broad a podcast that's 45 minutes long, a radio station will say, oh, well, you know, our slots are this long. We can't, there's no way we can accommodate it, even if we divide this into chunks. So from the podcaster's perspective, if you can create forms of your content that is very radio station conducive, and work to build those radio station relationships, even if they're not, there might not be a lot of financial incentive to do so. That's really how we're going to work on, on looking kind of quite, from a grassroots perspective, uh, organically growing markets across countries where we're not physically present in. So I, I think there's a lot of potential there. Um, I'll report back in six months as to how it's going. It might fail, but uh, I'm really looking forward to trying it out and getting some of this content out there. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of the podcast sessions and special thanks to the South Africa Media Innovation Program for allowing us access to this audio. For more engaging discussions and to download the latest issue of the podcast sessions digital magazine, visit www.thepodsessions.com.